Lounge podcast and to the very first episode of this Thought Lounge session series. In this series, we bring to you conversations from a Thought Lounge session with an actress, three Berkeley professors, and myself. Sarah Joy Brazier is a teacher-turned-actress who was born and raised in Ohio but is making her way in the world of theater in the San Francisco Bay Area. Antonio Montalban is a professor of mathematics at UC Berkeley. Born and raised in Uruguay, his research focuses on the foundations of mathematics and logic, and although he's still very young, he has already authored greater than the smallest twin prime that divides 102,419 but fewer than unclassifiably many papers on these powerful subjects. Clark Kellogg is a professor of design thinking at UC Berkeley. He uses the design thinking and innovation process to help create human-centered insights and solutions and has inspired much of the strategic planning process that's been used to develop our organization, Thought Lounge. Finally, presenting his topic in our episode today is Professor of Cognitive Science at UC Berkeley, Michael Rainey. Michael is interested in the nature of explanation and understanding. And today, he explores ways to improve our ability to convey some very challenging ideas. The challenging idea that he focused our attention on in this conversation was climate change. Enjoy! So, um, the uh, thing that's, that's made me the most passionate uh, for a while now, for a few years, is uh, climate change. And in particular, um, I'm interested in uh, why not everyone accepts uh, that global warming is occurring and caused by humans. And uh, I was thinking, especially in the, since the uh, election, that it'd be worth thinking about how to change uh, sort of public climate change learning uh, and think about how that might be different in an era with uh, Trump uh, seemingly like he's going to be the, the president. And um, so one of the things I thought that I could do uh, for groups that don't always think like people on the Berkeley campus who tend to, to swing a little bit more liberal is to try to expand the dialogue to other groups. So I thought, well, you know, I could like speak to the campus Republicans and not just here on the Berkeley campus, but other campuses and such. And uh, to talk to libertarians and independents. And one of the things that I thought might be interesting for them to hear is that in all of my talks now, I, uh, I sort of contextualize my approach to, to uh, climate science by saying I really wish that global warming were not true. And uh, in fact, I would be ecstatic if global warming were a hoax and that I was somehow deluded. And, uh, and so I actually make this pledge when I give talks, I'll say, I would be so happy that if someone could just please convince me that global warming were not true, that I would rent the largest SUV I could find, <laughs> I would drive to wherever they are, kiss them on the lips, or wherever else they need to be kissed, <laughs> stop doing work in this line of like climate change cognition entirely, and give back any dollar that I ever got uh, in this venture. And the thing that I like to also point out is that I'm not alone as a scientist or a cognitive scientist in feeling that way that if you actually asked a scientist, whether it's a climatologist or whatever, if that person um, would disconfirm global warming as a hoax, if they could, they would do it in a heartbeat. I mean, it would be crazy not to. I mean, all scientists just cherish the idea of overturning a, a really deeply held theory by their colleagues in the world, right? I mean, that's why it was so cool, you know, that 
that uh, Copernicus and Galileo and people like that uh, found this sort of world-changing notion of, uh, of sort of a, a heliocentric solar system. So not only that, but if I could disconfirm global warming, I would imagine that I would be the most famous scientist who ever lived. <laughs> and not only that, people would buy, buy me a beer wherever I went. <laughs> you know, they'd say, oh my God, you made it so that I didn't have to like put solar panels on my house. And it's so great. So the notion that somehow scientists are biased to accept global warming or they're just yes men and women uh, they're just trying to suck money out of the National Science Foundation and get money, they would just be glad to give that up. Because, you know, climate, climate scientists can find other things to do besides global warming. There's a lot of in climate and such. And when I was you know, doing other stuff in cognitive science, there was plenty of other stuff I could look at, like the, you know, understanding of physics and so forth. So I'm hoping that that can sort of dispel a little bit of this, this misconception. Uh, and it's a promoted misconception by various communities. Uh, I think that's part of agnotology, the sort of notion of misleading and false information that, that is sometimes offered uh, uh, about global warming. And you know, it's sort of sad that in some respects that um, when in these recent uh, debates between Clinton and uh, Trump, that the fourth most offered question, as I understand it, that came in from the public was about global warming. And in all three of the debates, the moderator never once asked about global warming. Once Clinton, you know, referred to Trump calling it a hoax, and he at least denied it in the moment there. And like the, I think one guy, Ken Bone, maybe asked a question about energy workers and such, but there really wasn't a question about global warming, even though this was the number foremost uh, asked about question from the public. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I do is I actually try to give people information in the experiments I run um, that causes them to think about global warming in a more scientific way. So one of the things I do is I'll ask people, what is the mechanism of global warming? Why is it that uh, uh, scientists uh, believe the, the notion that humans are causing an, an increase in the average temperature on Earth? Well, it turns out about 0% of Americans can answer that question. And it's really not that hard of a question to answer once you know it. In fact, we boiled it down into like a haiku. <laughs> and one of the things we found that if you just give people like 400 words, uh, just a text or in, in our videos, that, that after they watch that, that increases their acceptance of global warming. And so the, the haiku is, is a little belabored, but I can, I can say it. It's, it's that Earth turns sunlight to IR light that's sponged by folks, greenhouse gases glut. Now that's not very mellifluous, but the idea is that basically Earth is transforming visible light that we're getting from the sun. It absorbs that and it transforms it to infrared light and then it sends it back out towards space. But greenhouse gases that don't care anything about visible light coming in care a lot about infrared light going out and so it captures about 90% of all the infrared light that tries to leave the Earth, and it sort of recycles it and percolates it, and that's why we're sort of toasty. Otherwise, we'd be an ice ball. Our planet would be ice-covered. The problem is that as we add more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, less of that infrared light can get out, and so we're becoming super toasty. That is, global warming is basically this extra greenhouse effect on top of the already existing greenhouse effect. And that's why it's, we're getting hotter. 
Now, unfortunately, literally 0% of people can explain it, even at like a 35-word level. In fact, I've got a little card here I can pass around to the folks here. And on the top of that is our little 35-word, it's sort of an elaboration of a haiku. Uh, and that's just one of the ways that we find that we can increase people's acceptance of global warming. And that's true of conservatives and liberals as well. If we give them our 400 words or they see our videos, like we have uh, five different videos you can see, and I'll plug our website, which is called howglobalwarmingworks.org, howglobalwarmingworks.org. And uh, there are five videos that sort of explain this mechanism. If you have a crazy uncle who only has the attention span for like a cat video, then you know, shoot him the 52 second one. But if you have a cousin who's gonna teach a class on earth science, give her the five minute version. And he even explains what the molecules are doing, like why carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, but, but oxygen is not. And in our experiments, these are like randomized controlled experiments. We found basically five different ways to increase people's acceptance of global warming even conservatives, and they include uh, the text and the videos. And if you flip your cards over, you'll see there's actually a little quiz uh, just about statistics about global warming. And what we found that just these statistics, if you have people like fill in the little blanks in each of these seven little spots, and then they get the feedback about this, which is upside down on the bottom on the card, that this alone increases people's acceptance of global warming. In fact, it it works so well that in you know, this like five-minute intervention, and almost all of our interventions take less than five minutes, they're really quick, uh, that decreases the denial of people's global warming by about 28%. And that's true of conservatives as well as liberals. Other things we've done that have the same effect is that we um, give people little graphs, so we can contrast a graph of temperature over time from 1880 to the stock market over time, the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, adjusted for inflation, and uh, when you average them at like 16-year averagings, people can't tell them apart. Even at the Chicago Business School, they, <laughs> the people there I tested couldn't tell them apart. But it's very clear when we say, are these graphs going up or down? Are they flat? It's like, duh, <laughs> they're going up. It's really clear. And, and part of the reason that we give that is that it takes out the little jitter. You know, if you, the more you average, the more you get a fluid sort of change. In fact, the 64-year moving average looks like jet planes going off, whether it's temperature or it's, uh, or it's um, the stock market. That also increases people's acceptance of global warming. Again, five-minute intervention, and even conservatives uh, increase their acceptance. Um, so we've done a, a few of these. Um, some of the uh, interesting uh, ones that, uh, just to give you a sense of an item, I'll read one that's basically um, according to the National Climate Data Center, over the last 37, 374 months, how many have been above uh, how many have been above Earth's 20th century average monthly temperature? And the answer is all 374. In fact, since then it's been even more. Like basically, for over 30 years, we've had each month being hotter than the average of the of the, than the average month in the 20th century. Uh, there are only one sixth as many glaciers in Glacial National Park as there used to be. For every 100 record lows we have in the United States, if you measure it, we have 204 record highs. So we have way more record highs than lows. If we weren't moving anywhere, it'd be 100 to 100, right? So, so that gives you a little bit of a sense of that. Another thing that I'd, I'd like to point out is that global warming is not that expensive to fix. That is that according to the World Bank, we spend about $5. trillion per year just subsidizing fossil fuels. 
and uh, the back of the envelope uh, estimates that my group has come up with and others seem to agree with is that roughly for $48 trillion, we could like convert the whole planet to solar panels. So we're talking about like nine years expenditure, nine years of the average expenditures of what we're spending already subsidizing fossil fuels just to solve the problem. I mean, you couldn't do it in a day, right? So you couldn't just like slap a solar panel onto your car and say, see ya, <laughs> you know? But uh, it's doable. And uh, the real problem is political will and frankly, a lot of people who are providing money uh, to inhibit the information that we get out in our little website, howglobalwarmingworks.org. And, you know, it's a little concerning in the, the era of Trump. I mean, I'm hoping, you know, people talk about there being two Trumps, one who's a quite reasonable person that you might see when he's giving a deposition, uh, and another person who seems, you know, um, kind of um, ADHD, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And so it's a little concerning that he's put someone in charge of the transition team for the EPA, the Environmental Protection uh, Agency, that is a climate skeptic. Uh, but, you know, uh, Trump has children and grandchildren and probably great-grandchildren in the, in, uh, eventually. And so he, like the rest of us, has skin in the game. And so uh, hopefully, um, you know, uh, the people in his transitional administration will uh, look at this sort of information. And I'm hoping also just to get the word out in a more of a grassroots way, again, for uh, people who don't necessarily, who haven't necessarily sort of uh, accepted global warming, uh, because clearly we have ways to uh, change people's minds about that. So uh, maybe I'll see what people think. Uh, some of you might have looked at the card and have a question about a statistic or a mechanism, or you might wonder why is it that the mechanism is this magic bullet? Like, why does it um, change people's minds so dramatically? So you're saying it's because people didn't know the facts, hadn't heard about the facts before, and now you tell them some facts and that changes their mind? Yes, but they have to be the right facts. Part of the problem that others have done with climate change cognition, as I call it, is that they provide such a blizzard of facts that you don't know what are the most important ones. So those seven statistics are really quite important. But you also hear a lot of facts about, like, polar bears may be dying and things like that. And if you give just people a whole blizzard of information and not the most fundamental ones, things that, like, you can put into a haiku, then, you know, people lose interest or there's, you know, only a tolerance for that amount of information. Do those facts change based on your audience? They do to some degree, yeah. Um, so, for instance, you might imagine that some people that are, say, um, engineers, uh, they may be more compelled by our molecular explanation of why it is that, uh, how it is greenhouse gases uh, absorb infrared light. So, you know, the little critical elements that greenhouse gases have to have one point in their uh, rotations or stretchings or bendings, they're, with, they're asymmetrical. That might be a key to them. For other people, it may be just the visual image of 150 glaciers that all of a sudden are down to 25. And so that's the thing. I mean, you can't, there's not like a silver bullet of cognition for every, that will work with everyone because we all come in with diverse knowledge bases. That was Antonio Montalban, Sarah Brazier, Clark Kellogg, Michael Rainey, and myself on climate change. 
Presenting the topic today was Professor of Cognitive Science at UC Berkeley, Michael Rainey. For more information on Michael's work in these areas, please visit and share howglobalwarmingworks.org. One more time, that's howglobalwarmingworks.org, where you can find global warming explained in an accessible way in under 35 words. Thank you for listening to the Thought Lounge podcast. Our mission is to foster the practice of intentional, in-person dialogue within ourselves and our communities, in which we suspend initial judgment, practice equity of voice, listen to each person as if they are the most important person in the world, speak authentically, and recognize that creative conflict is good. For more information, visit thoughtlounge.org. And until next time, good thinking always.